a Podcast One production. This episode of the Next Billion Seconds User's Guide to the Future was produced in partnership with GIO. learned anything from 2020. It's that we need to be prepared. When we're prepared, we can make the best of things, whatever happens. Right now, because of COVID, we're all learning about how much change we're prepared to absorb. It's all change. We're in uncharted waters here, which makes 2020 all about resilience. So what's interesting, Mark, is that for many people, resilience is about survival. Resilience is about, I made it through I've got fortitude, you know, I'm stoic. That's not what resilience demands of us. Like What we really need in a situation of constant change, in a situation where suddenly all of our knowledge means nothing because every single facet of society is completely overhauling, what we need is resilience that helps us thrive. That's my friend and fellow futurist Sally Dominguez reminding us that we're going to focus on thriving as we put the worst bits of 2020 behind us, as we focus on this new world, this future, our future. Now, there's no question that the future will continue to surprise us. How much it surprises us, part's up to us. We can never know what tomorrow will bring, but we can prepare. Prepare ourselves, prepare our businesses, even prepare our nations. Prepared we can make the best of whatever happens. And truth be told, we already know the future. Even if we don't know the content, we know quite a bit about its risks. And that means we can be prepared. I'm Mark Pesci, and welcome to the Next Billion Seconds User's Guide to the Future. In this episode, we're looking at heat and heat waves, learning what we can do right now, today, to help us be more resilient so we can find our footing before the distant future has become the ground beneath our feet. I honestly think that in Australia, at least, I, I've, I have travelled quite extensively around the world looking at meeting with meeting people who have a similar interest to mine um, in this area. And it seems that Australians are actually a lot more kind of aware and have a greater acceptance of risk. I think it could be just due to our history of having de- dealt with droughts and floods and bushfires. And so as a society, we're sort of a little bit more open to dealing with these things. That's Brisbane architect James Davidson, whom we first heard from in episode one. He's done a lot of work helping homeowners and communities prepare for and minimize the impacts of floods. But as we know, Floods aren't the only risks facing Australians. There's droughts, there's bushfires, and there's heat. It gets hot here. No one would argue with that. But is it getting hotter? To know, well, we need to have a good idea of how hot it's been. And that, well, that touches on an issue of history. The national temperature record for Australia begins in 1910. The rainfall record begins in 1900. So that's the the period of time where... Um, our 
network of meteorological observations is reasonably reliable. They've been measured in a consistent way. Um, And so that's the main data product that we use for looking at uh, climate change in Australia from direct measurements. Uh, But even sort of historical um, direct measurements can go further back in time. And there has been work being done in Australia to, to rescue earlier observations of the climate, um, both that were made on land um, and also rescuing climate information from ship logbooks as well. So there is more information out there um, and scientists are working to try and build that into um, all of these things that we bring together to, to understand how Earth's climate is changing. That's ANU professor and climate scientist Nareel Abram reminding us that when we hear about record-breaking heat or rain or drought or floods, the record we're looking at is barely more than a century long. On a continent that's been continuously inhabited for 60,000 years or more. So that's less than two-tenths of one percent of the total human experience of Australia. Which, let's face it, that's not a lot of a sample. And the danger here, as James Davidson notes, is that what we might be missing could be very important. If you dig deeply into um, quite a lot of the publicly available reporting that's available at the moment around the country on, in terms of a probable maximum flood level, they call it, the PMF, you will see across the country that there's some scary numbers when it comes to the ultimate Noah's Ark kind of flood, right, if you think about it. And it's a lot higher than what a lot of cities have experienced at this point in in their history. But the work of um, the people that you're talking about, the researchers, there's one well-known piece of work that's been done in the Lockyer Valley near Brisbane here. And it goes back 2,000 years and it looks at sediment and the geology and you can, apparently they've been able to find out how to trace flooding uh, in history. And you look at that and you think, man, what we experienced in 2011 was actually a relatively minor flood. The Lockyer Valley flash flood of 2011 was a huge natural disaster. It killed the people that destroyed homes and properties and seemed at the time just about as bad as things could get. But that might not actually be true. If we only have a view into less than a fifth of 1% of Australia's human history, we can't see that ultimate flood, that Noah's Ark event. And we don't know how often they happen, though we can see at least one of them in the record. And this means climate science isn't just about telling us that the planet is warming and that we really need to stop using fossil fuels. Even though that's true and will become more true, climate science has another incredibly vital task to perform. It has to reveal the past for us so we can take the full measure of the risks in the present. And that's the focus of Nareel Abrams' work. So specifically, I'm a paleoclimate scientist, which means that I find ways that we can use records that the Earth has preserved and use those to reconstruct what the climate was like in the past and use those to give context to the changes that we're seeing now and to say, well, this is unusual in terms of the the long-term operation of our climate system. 
So the type of work that I do involves collecting corals from tropical coral reefs um, and using those to reconstruct how um, the temperature of the ocean has changed, how tropical rainfall has changed. Uh, it also involves going to Antarctica and collecting ice cores and using those to understand how polar climate has changed and what effect that has um, on the climate where we live in Australia. Paleoclimatology is all about looking backward. Where we don't have human records, and mostly we don't anywhere for more than a few hundred years, where we don't have them, we can look at the natural world because the processes of weather leave traces, and those traces tell a story. For Nareel, that's the story of the last millennium of weather and climate. My work mostly focuses on the last 1,000 years. Um, and so in that period of time, we're looking um, in great detail. So sometimes uh, even at sort of re- reconstructing the climate at a, a monthly detail to get the, the really fine scale climate patterns and understand sort of how that interaction between the climate and the, the weather operates. That's the kind of fine detail month by month that helps us to understand not just the big changes in temperature and precipitation, but the tiny seasonal changes. And those samples can also reveal extraordinary events like a Noah's Ark-style flood or a drought. So, for example, Australia um, had a drought that lasted for 39 years. So just off the record compared to what we're used to. So if a 39-year drought is visible in the record, within the last thousand years... Could it happen again? Well, the answer to that really depends on something known as the Indian Ocean Dipole. The Indian Ocean Dipole is a natural climate phenomenon. Um, It happens um, by a coupling between the ocean and the atmosphere in the tropical Indian Ocean. It's, It's similar to the El Nino Southern Oscillation, which we see in the Pacific Ocean and which many people will have heard of before. Uh, the Indian Ocean Dipole's a, a bit lesser known, uh, but does have a strong impact on Australia's climate and also climate um, in East Africa as well. So what happens when we have a positive Indian Ocean Dipole event is that the temperature of the ocean to the north of Australia, to the northwest of Australia, becomes cooler than usual. That changes the atmospheric circulation patterns. Um, and importantly for Australia, it cuts off one of our really important source, sources of um, rainfall, of moisture. Um, and so when we have the oceans to the northwest of Australia being cooler than usual during one of these events, we end up with a hotter and a drier year in Australia. So one example would be uh, a a climate phenomenon that affects Australia and that was one of the things that was in play last year in 2019 when we had this really um, extreme hot and dry year in Australia and the terrible bushfires that followed. And you might remember back in 2019 how persistently hot and dry it became in southeastern Australia. That was the Indian Ocean Dipole at its equal highest ever recorded value. And the record, as far as we can tell, is pointing to a lot more of that sort of thing. And so we, we have a hint from our direct measurements that those types of positive Indian Ocean Dipole events are becoming more frequent. But it's, it's just a hint. And climate models also say that we expect these events to become more frequent in the future, but we know that there's some issues with how well models can capture the process of that. So what we can do is to go um, and take um, 
records from corals in the eastern Indian Ocean where we have the sea surface temperature anomalies associated with this climate process. And we can look back over the last 1,000 years and when we do that, we can see that this recent intensification where these events are becoming more frequent, they're becoming stronger, is really unusual in a long-term context. And we're now pushing that system outside of its natural range of variability before human-caused climate change. So what does that mean for us? When we come back, we'll take a look at an Australia that's getting hotter faster than you think. Welcome back to the next Billion Seconds User's Guide to the Future. We've taken a look back into the natural record, casting our sights back a thousand years to understand how and why big dry events like the ones that preceded our black summer bushfires might be becoming more common. The Indian Ocean Dipole can cut off rain to southeastern Australia. And that dipole event, it looks to be becoming more frequent. Here's paleoclimatologist Nareel Abram. We've seen these positive Indian Ocean dipole events happening more regularly um, and more often they are of a really extreme nature. And if we then couple that with looking to the future with climate models, that is a trend that we expect to continue so that extreme events like what we saw in 2019 are projected to, to happen three times more often this century compared to last century. Now, how does that feel here? Well... More often than not, it's a dry heat, possibly even a heat wave. Look, there's no one way to define heat waves. There's a number of different ways, but we can say generally that they're prolonged periods of excessive heat. So generally they last for a few days or more. Those days must be consecutive. Um, Anywhere from, say, two to three days is considered a reasonably short event up to or even over a month. We've seen heat waves in the last decade. Some parts of the world last for well over a month. But yeah, prolonged periods of excessive heat is the general definition. That's Sarah Perkins Kirkpatrick, a climate scientist at the University of New South Wales who focuses on extreme climate events like heat waves. And we need to be clear, heat waves are not the same thing as climate change. Yes, the Earth is warming up because of all the carbon dioxide we're adding to it, but heat waves, they've always been a thing. So heat waves are a type of extreme weather or climate event. So they do, they do occur, even if there was no such thing as climate change or anything like that, they would occur, they'd just be rare. Extreme events are rare by their very definition. But what we're seeing in a world, in a warmer climate, is they're becoming less rare. The climate's warming faster than what, you know, species or people can adapt, generally speaking. And so that's why these events are occurring more often and, I guess, having a greater impact. While Nareel Abram has been looking at the last thousand years, and has seen how the Indian Ocean Dipole has become more frequent, Sarah has had a tighter focus, looking at the more recent record, the human record, to determine if heat waves have become more common. We looked at how heat wave trends had been changing globally over the last 70 or so years. So this was going back to about 1950. And we looked at how the frequency of heat waves, their duration, as well as their intensity had changed over that time. Now, that might seem like something that should have been done before because we tend to say that heat waves are already longer, hotter and um, occurring more in frequency. But we hadn't been able to do this globally. We hadn't been able to focus on every region consistently. 
What we found, though, is, you know, pretty daunting and pretty scary. It does certainly fit to that narrative of hotter, longer and more often. Um, basically, everywhere in the world have seen an increase in the frequency and duration of heat waves. It's getting hot all over. That's what the science says. But more heat waves don't necessarily mean more intense heat waves. So when we're looking at the intensity of heat waves, there are a number of ways to measure heat wave intensity. And our initial results showed that the average intensity of heat waves weren't changing. It wasn't getting worse, it wasn't getting better. They, they just weren't really changing. So that's a bit of good news, but, and you knew there was going to be a but, it's how fast those heat waves are ramping up that's the important bit. So we looked at the cumulative heat, which is how much extra heat is generated by heat waves. And this, this measures quite closely with how we're seeing increases in the number of heat wave days. So the more heat wave days you see, the more exceedances you have of that particular extreme threshold, and therefore there's more extra heat that is being experienced. And we actually found some, some quite significant changes. Some regions are experiencing anywhere from maybe 5 to 10 degrees extra heat per decade generated by heat waves. So if you think of the last 70 years, you know, 10 degrees extra per decade is now 70 degrees extra than what it used to be. Now, I've lived in Australia nearly 20 years. That means, by Sarah's data, I've seen 20 degrees more heat being generated by heat waves. 20 degrees. So what does that mean for someone who lives in the temperate zones of Australia or its tropics? So you can have heat waves in, say, Hobart versus heat waves in Darwin. But a heat wave in Darwin will likely be hotter on absolute terms compared to heat waves in Hobart. But it's important that it's relative to that local climate because the people who live there, the animals that live there, the ecosystems, even the infrastructure is designed for that particular location or, you know, <laughs> settles there for that particular location. Um, depending where you are in Australia, though, those changes will be different. So in the tropics, they will see an increase in the intensity, but by far and large, the largest increase will be in the frequency of heat waves. And this is because in tropical areas, the interannual temperature range is actually quite small to begin with. You know, it may range anywhere between 5 to 10 degrees in, in a given year. So when you see just a slight shift in average temperatures, which we've already seen a one degree shift in, the change in the frequency is much higher than what you would see in a climate that has a, you know, a, a 50 degree temperature range. Other places in Australia, so down south, and by south I mean around Melbourne, Adelaide, that sort of area, they'll actually see the largest increase in heatwave intensity. Um, it's quite dry there, it's quite hot, and it's the climate's more variable there. Um, it has a higher temperature range year to year. Um, what's most concerning about those changes there, though, is that, though that, that's a part of Australia that already experiences some really intense heatwaves. So if you think of heatwaves in Adelaide, which can be days on end of 40, 45 degrees, Melbourne has had some stunners lately, you know, the Australian Open heatwave in 2014. Those sorts of events will be occurring more often in the future, undoubtedly. OK, we understand the risk now. It's hot. It's getting hotter, especially in some places that have already caught some early glimpses of a future with more and more frequent heat waves. So what do we do? And here, Sarah Perkins Kirkpatrick was at pains to point out that she's speaking as a climate scientist, not as a politician. So first and foremost, I would phase out our reliance on fossil fuels as quickly as I possibly could. So I'd start off with probably um, making sure that everyone had access to green energy solutions, whether it be solar panels on their house or, or wind technology or energy providers actually got their energy from greener sources. Um, also making things like uh, battery cars 
more affordable so people could access them more readily, certainly in terms of building design. So Australia is like a, a really hot country, yet we live in glorified tents as houses. It's absolutely ridiculous. So maybe bring in whiter roofs, uh, better insulation, double glazing windows. That's a really big one. Um, if everyone has solar panels on their roof, then they can crank their, their air conditioning in summer and it doesn't matter so much. Greener spaces, so around houses, make sure that they're, you know, spaced by enough <laughs> so airflow can happen and trees can be planted to keep the, the, urban, the urban heat island at bay. And if you're thinking of buying or retrofitting your home? Don't buy a house with a black roof first. You know, that, that, it, that absorbs a lot of extra energy. Or if you do so, buy one that, that you can uh, have some sort of um, energy efficiency. There's some sort of uh, film or something that you can put on your roof to, to help it reflect that sunlight back off it. So that would, that's going to keep your house a lot cooler. Uh, double glazing windows, they're an insulator. They keep the heat out, they keep the cool out in winter. You know, that, 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 that's, that's quite a simple thing you can do, especially if you're building. Uh, just normal insulation as well is really good. And try and cool your house as passively as you can during summer. So open your windows at night, keep your doors shut and your blinds shut during the day. It really does make a difference. You might think, oh, it's only going to change the temperature by one or two degrees, but that's going to save your power bill by 10 or 20%. So these sorts of things, you know, they do make a difference. And not just your power bill, obviously, energy usage as well. Um, Using ceiling fans is also one that people tend to throw away these days because we have access to air conditioning. Fans are just as effective as air conditioning up until about 38 degrees Celsius. So if your temperature is measuring 38 degrees or less in your house, turn on your fan because that will help keep you cool by evaporating moisture from from your skin by sweating. Now, I have to give this last suggestion a personal vote of confidence. I installed a ceiling fan in my bedroom recently and it made a world of difference. That's a simple, effective technique for living in a hot country and it's energy efficient. And the little things do add up. They do matter. I think people can get quite overwhelmed with all of these things that they can and should be doing. And I, look, I do too. But I think, you know, if, if you can make smaller changes one by one, even if you only in- introduce one a month or even one a year, it's better than not doing anything at all. So whether it's shopping locally or recycling soft plastic or saving up for a solar rig or stopping to eat red meat, if you do it slowly, it's better than not doing it at all. And I think people need to remember that if they're wanting to be empowered of the changes that they can make. You can make these changes slowly. That's fine. And that brings us back to this idea of resilience. Resilience is not a one-off. It's not a single round of preparations for some sort of natural event, as Sally Dominguez reminds us. Resilience is not about being busy, being productive. No, it's about I made it through and I'm not only making it through, but I'm going to observe the chaos and I'm going to make it better. I'm going to better it for myself and I'm going to better it for every single person I can possibly impact. Resilience allows us to be comfortable with these necessary and continuous changes that we all need to make to prepare for a future that looks different than our past. It's good work. It's the kind of hard yards that Australians are up for. And it's the second chapter in our user's guide to the future. In our next episode, we'll take a look at bushfires. Now that we know we'll have more heat and more dry, will we see more bushfires? How can we live with them? And what can we learn from the past to help us with that future? That's the next chapter in our user's guide to the future. 
all this talk about climate and history and heat waves probably raise some questions? If so, we'd like to hear from you. Drop by our website at nextbillionseconds.com or leave us a message on LinkedIn. We'll do our best to answer them. Big thanks to Sally Dominguez, Nareel Abram, Sarah Perkins Kirkpatrick, and James Davidson for coming onto our show. Thanks to the Center for Climate Extremes at UNSW for facilitating connections with some of the world's leading climate scientists. The Next Billion Seconds User's Guide to the Future was written and presented by Mark Pesci, created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia in partnership with GIO. Producer Alex Mitchell and sound production by Darcy Thompson. For more episodes, go to podcastoneaustralia.com.au, download the Podcast One Australia app, or search the next billion seconds. This is Mark Pesci, thanking you for listening.